Welcome to the Pop Culture Mass Podcast. This is Matt. And I'm Jason. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate it. You know, we just want to celebrate pop culture and celebrate film especially. Um, music, when we can get a chance to talk about it. T- TV, you know, why not let other people listen to it if they want? And if they don't, fuck them. Yeah, and I think if I brought another friend on a podcast to talk movies with me, you'd probably never talk to me again. <laughs> I mean, I think the same goes for you, too. I mean, let's be honest. It's, you know, there's really nobody else in the world that I could talk movies with like I could talk movies with you. So There's nobody that turns a tight 45-minute podcast into two and a half hours of discussion quite like you do. <laughs> Or like yeah, you and I, I did together, to, at least. I was going to say, I was going to say, I, I didn't do that alone, and that was definitely with a lot of your help <laughs> and your massive soliloquies about beer and whatnot. So, indeed, or should I say, indeed, <laughs> indeed, yes, sir, the check is in the mail. Yes, sir, the check is in the mail. This is our big trouble in little China episode. This is a film that we both, I think, feel very strongly about. Yeah, I mean, I I do like it, even though I'm probably going to say some pretty controversial things as far as you're concerned about the film. Um, it's still a film that I love, but it's not a film without problems. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, we were talking a little bit before the podcast about digressions, and I think at times this film seems like a giant digression. So, you know, there, there are definitely some interesting things about this film that I think have played into not only its cult's cult status and uh, mystique, but also, you know, a little bit as to why it wasn't initially successful when it was released in the theaters. So, and this movie is one that I think, um, that I could really, I can really kind of put up on a pedestal, maybe even an altar because I watched big trouble in little China for the first time when I was a, a very young man. I think I was like five or six when this film was released. So by the time it got some airplay on, on television, I might've been eight. I don't know. There was a summer where I watched this movie every single day for the entirety of the summer. This is almost like um, the perfect film. I didn't really view it critically as a younger man. So I go back and I rewatch this movie and this is a film that I have no complaints with whatsoever. So you'll have to do all the complaining for this episode about this film because I don't have a (laughs) single complaint. I don't think I'm going to complain, but I'll definitely cast a more critical eye eye, eye towards it than, than you will. For me, that movie is probably Back to the Future uh, for me. Um, I don't think I can find a single fault in that film either. But yeah, I mean, I, I love Big Trouble in Little China too. It's like one of those films I also saw when I was a younger kid. You know, it's definitely something that was on you know TBS and TNT a lot when I was growing up. So I had a chance to watch, and I definitely believe you when you say you see you, you watch this film every day during the summer. And yeah. you know, anybody listening to the podcast should definitely understand that. You are being literal, not yeah. figurative. When yeah. you say every day, you mean every day. And I totally understand that because I've also done that with other movies too. It was a different time as well because there, there weren't 
DVDs everywhere. You couldn't go to a red box. There weren't um, Apple TVs where you could rent any movie for $3. I mean, you had maybe a small collection of films that were treasured to you back then. And you did tend to rewatch the same three or four movies over and over again. And, and so you could really learn the ins and outs, every single line, every single look, every moment. Um, and this is one of those films for me that I just, I learned inside and out backwards and forwards. So, you know, explain to the audience a little bit, Jason, about what it is you actually love about Big Trouble in Little China. Give us a good two or three minutes of just pure, unadulterated why you love this movie. Did you say four or five hours? Because I can go on and on <laughs> about why I love this movie. There's a, there's a really, for me, there's a lot to love about this movie. I think when I was a kid and I first watched it, it had all of those, you know, martial arts fight sequences. And I think I kind of accepted it more as a kind of a straight action adventure type of film with some fantasy elements. But then rewatching it as I got older, I was able to ex experience and appreciate some more of the so, sort of the comedic elements of the film as well. Some of the sillier parts that are meant to be a little bit more tongue in cheek. And, um, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe first and foremost, I really love a lot of the characters there's the Jack Burton, of course, is is the main character. You've got to love this guy. He's got this like completely undeserved swagger. Like he's totally the sidekick of the film. Right. <laughs> but he thinks he's the main guy. Right. It's, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, he thinks he's the hero. Yeah. He's just a blowhard, but he's a completely lovable blowhard. I mean, it's it's hard not to like the guy. But when I really noticed he was the sidekick of the film is when I paid attention to how many questions he asks throughout the movie. Like every other line out of his mouth is a question. Like, where'd you get that? What is that? What is this Wang? What is that? Oh, don't tell me. Everything is a question coming out of his mouth. He's just almost in this permanent sense of this kind of sidekick shock. He's being kind of dragged through the movie as a sidekick, but he still thinks he's the main character. Everybody else, they don't ask all the questions, but Jack Burton, the whole movie, he's just, what the heck is going on? And, you, you know, one of the things as I kind of grew up watching this movie that, I, you know, I just never know what exactly this movie is. Right. Yeah. Is it uh, is it like a Hong Kong type, you know, chop suey fight film? Is it an action comedy? Is it a scary fantasy? Is it is it even it's even got some screwball romantic comedy stuff going on between Kurt Russell and uh, Kim Cattrall. So like, is, this is a lot of different movies in one. Like, how do you kind of see what the, the what the movie's all about? I reflected on that question. That's a very great question, because there's a, a moment in the. Uh, in the film itself, where I think the character of Egg Shen really explains very well the philosophy, the underlying philosophy that kind of informs what this movie is made up of. He says, we take what we want and leave the rest, just like your salad bar. And so it is kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of different things. There's a whole bunch of different stuff. This is kind of a buffet of films. There is the screwball element. There's the fantasy with the, the weird demons and the wizardry and stuff. And then there's the martial arts sequences. There's even a little bit of buddy comedy. So um, it is this weird mishmash that, I mean, honestly, it's if you dialed it a little bit more to the left or a little bit more to the right, it, it almost wouldn't work, but it, it sort of achieves this perfect balance of those elements that would normally like on paper, that sounds like it clashes wicked bad. There are, I think there are a couple of times in the film where it clashes just a little bit. And maybe that has more to do with the limitations of Carpenter's budget 
some of the monsters, particularly the monster that grabs Gracie uh, towards the end of the film, not the best creature work going on there. Yeah, that's pretty bad. But but it also, I think, adds a little bit to the charm of the movie because let's face it, more than anything else, this movie is a gigantic ball of cheese and the great Kurt Russell is the center of that cheese. I have to agree with you that I think the the budget was a limitation. Every time I've read about the making of this film, it's often cited that they were kind of held back on their special effects. It, it's not just a product of 80s special effect movie magic, because in a lot of ways it looks worse than films that preceded it by several years. But I think they do kind of embrace the cheese a lot. So instead of trying to play this off as the super serious movie, thanks to the comedic elements, I really think they make the budgetary limitations work pretty well. For instance, they filmed most of the movie on sets that were built. A lot of these like back alley fight scenes and stuff were filmed on these sets. And so that you wouldn't see it was a set. They would, they would use these fog machines and it, I, honestly, the, on, on the one hand, there's a practical consideration. They're trying to make it not look so much like a set. But then for me watching it, it has this kind of weird ethereal haze to it. There's just this kind of um, look that they create with that that to me makes it a little bit more fantastical and, and maybe even a little dreamlike. Right. I mean, and there definitely is a, a moment that I started noticing in the film uh, maybe a few years back on maybe my – 20th or 25th rewatch, which is nowhere near as many as times as you've watched it. I think I've probably watched this film under 30 times, which Whoa. is still pretty high for me, but I know it's not, it's not really up there for you. Orders of magnitude. I know. I've, I've seen this thing orders of magnitude more than 30 times. <laughs> I do not, I do not disagree or disbelieve you when you say that, but uh, the scene where they first encounter Lopan and, in the truck and he runs him over, they get out of the truck, they run out and then they run around a corner. They run around another corner and they're literally right back where they started. So it's one of those things where it's like you can really see the limitations of where they are and how they're filming the movie because they're literally just working in, in this small area. It's probably just yeah. a single soundstage in which they built a couple of you know, uh, walls uh, to be buildings and, and, and a couple of roads to be these alleyways. But, you know, cause it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be taking place in Chinatown in San Francisco, which is where a lot of people I know kind of misremember this movie and think it takes place in New York's, uh, New York's Chinatown, but it's San Francisco's Chinatown instead. It's not only a movie of its time and, and the kind of cheese, that kind of really delicious cheese that came out in the eighties, but you know, it did have some limitations, but the, you know, I tell you, that's kind of what John Carpenter is known for, right? It's his, yeah. it's, it's, he's, he's able to work within those limitations and still deliver a fun movie, a good movie, uh, not only on time, but probably under budget. I mean, let's be honest, the creature work in this film is nowhere near as good as in The Thing, but you know, I probably enjoy this movie far more, just not just for the fact that I hate horror movies and I'm a gigantic pussy when it comes to horror movies. <laughs> but, you know, it's just I think this this movie is just more fun and, and it's supposed to be. Yeah. The thing isn't really a fun movie. It's yeah. a horror movie. Yeah, this this movie is meant to be fun. I think first and foremost, right. it's supposed to be a fun movie. You know, with the, the cheese analogy is a good one because this movie, Big Trouble in Little China, is not a 
a fancy imported French cheese. It's American pre-sliced, individually wrapped cheese. It's 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 cheese. Oh, I was going to say not, Velveeta, man. Or it's, it's a bl- it's, it's a Velveeta. block of Velveeta. Fantastic, yeah, even better. <laughs> it's Velveeta. So, but but Velveeta has its place. I mean, there's there is a time and a place for just that cheap ballpark stadium cheese out of a fucking can, you know? And I think that's, that's this film. You're not expecting this film to be like the other movies that came out that year that won Academy Awards. I mean, this is not meant to stand next to Goodfellas or, or something of, of that magnitude. It does what it does even better than any of those other films. And I'll tell you, I'll watch Goodfellas once a year, but I really will watch Big Trouble in Little China once a month, how fun it is makes it so much more watchable for me. I think like, you know what, you know, what's interesting, even though I consider this film, I'm about to say a much better film to me, it's almost like it's a, it's, it's a cousin of big brother, uh, big trouble in little China or, or a sibling maybe in that it, it is just so good. And that's the princess bride. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, I think princess bride is a much better film. Don't get me wrong, but I think, the kind of place in like your soul that it touches is, is it that it's in that same kind of place? Yeah. I mean, it's that, it's just that time. It's just that time, you know, that mid eighties between like 85 and 88, these types of movies were being made that you just don't see anymore. These low budget, small movies made for just about anybody to watch. It's, I don't think, I mean, that's the thing. Like we talked about, like what is big trouble in little China? It's so many different things. So many different people can find something to like in this movie. And that kind of brings me back to the idea of who is Jack Burton? You know, something that I've never considered before is what you said, is that he's the sidekick. I never really saw him as a sidekick. I kind of saw it as like a buddy kind of movie, like a, almost like a buddy cop movie, except they're not cops between him and Wang. But yeah. I guess if you really look at it, Wang is the hero. Yeah. And Jack is he's 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 the he's our look-see inside of this world he's he he's our stand-in the audience is standing you know it is it is kind of funny because all he does the whole movie is like what the hell is going on here yeah so he's definitely got a little bit of that wrong place wrong time thing going on and also almost a little bit of like a buffoon oh yeah like you said that unearned unearned swagger there's a part in the dvd commentary where um kurt russell is describing the, the character of Jack Burton. And he is saying that he considered Jack Burton to be much more of a sidekick. I think, in fact, John Carpenter had the idea of saying, well, usually these films star a Caucasian hero and he's assisted by a minority sidekick. In this case, it would have been Wang, right? But Carpenter decided, let's flip the script on this. Let's make Wang Chi, essentially the hero, he's the one who does most of the martial arts fighting and defeats all the guys, except for, you know, Jack Burton does get low pan in the end. Um, but right. Kurt Russell says he's obviously the sidekick. He falls on his ass as much as he comes through. That's a quote from Kurt Russell. Right. So <laughs> he does like he is a buffoonish, you know? No, I like that. Yeah, because it is it is Wang Wang's story drives the movie. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's his it's his fiance that goes missing. It's 
he's the one. Yeah. He's the one who drives and propulses the, the, the plot along. So yeah, that is even Jack was like, hey, I'll give you a lift. Hop in my car. Where are we going? The airport. Okay. Never done that before. You know, I mean, he's Wang owed him money from the, um, the gambling debt from the night before, and he wasn't going to follow Wang and he wasn't going to meet him back at his restaurants. He says, all right, hop in the car and I'll give you a lift. And so, I mean, he almost starts as the sidekick just from the get-go. He's just trying to get paid. Then he's just trying to get his truck back. And it worked very well. That was a good balance. So now we're probably going to get into a little bit of the film where I might actually have some some questions about certain things that I think the film may be trying to do and then they totally abandon. Like, like right at the beginning, the film starts out as a frame story set in the future mm-hmm. with Egg Chen describing what happened to whom I guess is the FBI or the local police or something. His lawyer. But it doesn't end. It does yeah, it doesn't end with a frame with with the end with the ending part of that frame. Yeah. It ends with, you know, Jack Burton driving along in the Port Chop Express yeah. with one of the Chinese demons hiding out in his spare tire area or whatever. So it's like it's like it it starts like a frame story. It doesn't end with the frame yeah. story. And it just one of those things it's just a little weird it it makes the movie kind of feel uneven and wonky they always call it a frame story but usually for um for a lot of films it's more like bookends so this one's just kind of like one bookend at the beginning and uh they originally that was not actually originally part of the script what happened was there were test screenings of the film and some of the executives with paramount were left scratching their heads saying like this Jack Burton guy, we don't get him. I mean, he's not really a, exactly a hero, is he? He falls on his ass just as much as he comes through. So John Carpenter slapped that that initial scene with Egg Shen talking to his lawyer about how heroic Jack Burton really was to try to ameliorate that glaring lack of heroism from, from Jack Burton. And I actually think it's very clear that that scene was kind of tacked on at the end, but I think it works pretty well right. to come at the beginning of the film. You, you get to hear Egg Shen describing Jack Bernie says he showed great courage. You know, he's describing Jack as a, you're kind of going into the film expecting this guy like, wow, he really saves the day. Right. And then he's, he's falling right. on his ass. He's knocking himself unconscious, getting <laughs> his butt kicked. And you're like, who the fuck is this guy? He's supposed to be saving the day. It, it, it really almost works well to set you up for the character. Like you're expecting, the the Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Sylvester Stallone, 80s type of action hero, and you don't get that at all. I mean, you you get this kind of it's really great what you get out of Jack uh, if you expect him to be this this big hero going in. I mean, it definitely subverts our expectations for yeah. sure, and I think I mean it, it it does feel a little uneven still to me because I think you know just as a narrative experience, it should end back in that office with Egg Chen, but. You know, you're right. It sets it. It sets up this premise that is completely flipped us on, on its head within like the next thirty minutes. So I think that's pretty great. Like I almost wonder, you know, in in writing in the writing of this script, were they trying to write it to to different beats or different set pieces? Because like it goes, it it has some weird digressions as a film. Like I said at the beginning, so we go from the gambling to the airport to uh, the chase after uh, Miao Lin is, is kidnapped, to the funeral with a gang fight, and then, oh, my God, what the fuck are these Chinese spirit winds doing here? I mean, it's 
it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Just to kind of get, just to kind of get from piece to piece and think like sometimes the, the string that binds the different scenes together is very flimsy. Like, Oh yeah. Gracie law just happened to be at the airport at the same time. And then, Oh yeah. She just happens to show up right here when we need her to show up. It's just, it's one of those things that seems a little coincidental that I kind of hate sometimes in movies. I probably ignore it a little bit in this one, yeah. but it definitely plays into the fact that it def it feels a little slapdash. Yeah. It feels like it was kind of slapped together. A little it bit. definitely feels like, I mean, it feels like it's very breakneck paced. You think, when do these characters actually take a break? I don't think they sleep at all. I mean, the storyline takes place over like, I don't know, 36 hours or something like that. And it starts with Jack Burton driving all night then gambling all night. They, they just go from one adventure to the next until the movie ends. And um, I actually think that that's probably a product of the, the various rewrites that this film went through. So um, this film originally began its life as a Western. So there, the first draft was Jack Burton is a cowboy. He's rolling into town. Um, it went through a couple of rewrites. The, the studio wasn't happy with it being a period piece. They wanted it to be more modern. And um, they brought in W.D. Richter, the guy who wrote and directed Buckaroo Banzai. Love that movie. We're going to have to do that movie. Exactly. These movies are definitely cousins because he did a major overhaul of the, the script for Big Trouble in Little China. And he introduced probably about 90% of what I love to that film. He made it contemporary. I think he deserves a lot of credit for what the movie wound up being. Um, with Carpenter, he brought in some of the other stuff that I love, like the more screwball comedy, the rapid fire dialogue between Gracie and Jack Burton. That was kind of Carpenter. But I think W.D. Richter, he he started with this other script that these other gentlemen had written. And then he had to do this major overhaul. And then John Carpenter also does some stuff to it. So it goes through several hands. And I think that maybe that what, what you're picking up on is, is part of that, you know, just maybe one set piece kind of coming from the first guy and then another set piece coming from the second guy and then John Carpenter adding a third. And that you, what you might be feeling is like too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is a little bit of a too many cooks feel to it, I guess you could say. And and I guess, you know, that explanation more than any probably explains a little bit of those issues uh, for sure. I, hey, I, here's a here's an interesting tidbit. I don't know if you spotted before. And, and to be honest, I don't think I spotted it until this last watch through was that uh, Egg Shen's house and, and his uh, herb, herb shop or, you know, spell shop or whatever it is that he has there is actually the Ghostbusters firehouse. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's yeah. it's the same yeah. Ghostbusters firehouse. I thought that was kind of cool. I never thought about that, but that is very, very cool. I think um, the company that was doing some of the special effects for this film was also working on Ghostbusters right around the same time, and maybe that could potentially be an explanation, but um, it is it is very cool, like interesting thing to notice. One thing I would say in defense of the kind of Kim Cattrall showing up when she needs to. I mean, typically that's like deus ex machina stuff that comes into a movie where, you know, characters just kind of come out of nowhere and it's like, ah, would this really happen? This is kind of not really realistic. I can see bumping into her at, at an airport because you bump into random people at an airport, but then her showing back up to the Chinese restaurant and reintroducing herself to the plot 
it does seem a bit contrived, I guess, maybe in the context of other films. But I always thought it was kind of charming in this movie because it makes Chinatown seem like this small world. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to bump into someone at the airport, you're probably going to bump into them on the street or in a Chinese restaurant. That's one of the things that you asked me what I love about this film earlier. And that's one of the things that I really love about this film because it makes Chinatown seem like such a, you know, unique little microcosm. It's its own world. It's like a place within a place. Like you said, it's San Francisco Chinatown. So it's already kind of a subset of this urban environment. But then inside Chinatown, you have kind of different levels too. There's the tourist side with Egg Shen's tour bus. I love at the beginning, he's like, what do you do? I, uh, tour bus driver. Uh, bus for tourists. Like he's got to say it twice. Like, oh, I didn't know what tour bus driver was. I love that about Egg Shen. But so there's that sort of the touristy side, but then there's that the Chinatown of the back alleys where you have these like gang wars that go on at these funerals. But then there's an even deeper layer where you go underground and there's the, the demons and the wizards and stuff like that. And so it makes this Chinatown. Yeah. Don't forget all the different Chinese hells as well. Oh, we got to mention the Chinese hells. That is one of the, that is one of the better running jokes in a movie. I think for sure is they start when they talk about all the different Chinese hells, the, the hell of being cut to pieces, the hell of boiling oil, the hell of upside down sinners. I mean, it goes on and on and it's, it is, it's pretty funny. It's, it's a, it's a pretty cool recurring joke that they use. I thought that was a great gag because they, it was a different hell every time, every time somebody was going to get sent to hell, it, it was a different hell. And Eddie, the maitre d' at the restaurant even explains it says, Oh, the Chinese got a lot of hells. Just, writes it off like <laughs> right we got a lot of health that's just the way it <laughs> right. is you know what i mean it's it's almost like um the actual film chinatown with jack nicholson he's like well, that's just chinatown we got a lot of health you know it's just chinatown this is how- <laughs> and I, I love actually i mentioned eddie and i was just talking about how i love how chinatown feels like it's got these different layers within it and it's like this little it's like this place within a place the 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 people in the movie kind of have hidden sides too because I mentioned Eddie he's the maitre d of this Chinese restaurant owned by Wang you would think that this would be the most foppish character in the whole film I mean he's a maitre d he works at a restaurant he wears a suit and a tie this is not a man who's accustomed to violence but it turns out he is there's the scene where um, Jack Burton's trying to get his gun to work and it finally goes off like six times and he hits the guy and the guy falls over and dies and Jack's looking very shocked and surprised just mouth kind of hanging open and Eddie looks at him just like what is the first time you ever plug somebody and Jack's still silent for a second. He goes, of course not. And you're thinking, you're thinking, of course it's the first time he's ever killed somebody. He looks like he just shit his pants. And then you think about what these two people do. Like what's their profession? One guy is a fucking trucker. The other guy's a maitre d' at the restaurant. The trucker is the one who's like, Oh my God, I just killed someone. The maitre d' at the restaurant is the one who's like, Oh yeah, this happens all the time. Like I love the, the way they kind of turn that relationship around. Because if I ever imagined myself being murdered by someone and you tell me it's either going to be a trucker or the maitre d' at a restaurant, I'm like, oh yeah, trucker all the way. That trucker's definitely going to murder me. Truckers murder people all the time. That's like their side gig, right? So the the fact that the trucker is kind of this like virgin to violence, but the maitre d' of a restaurant is like a oh, nonchalant. Yeah. First time you ever plugged somebody? I love that scene. I try to point that out to everybody. And my wife just looks at me. She's like, yeah. Yeah, that's really funny. Disclaimer, the Pop Culture Mass podcast would like truckers to know that, no, we do not believe that all truckers murder everybody, and that's what they do. Thank you very much. Not all truckers. Not all truckers. Sorry about that, guys. (laughs) No, but uh, 
it is kind of like those little beats that that kind of you're right kind of make the movie as fun as it is and i and i really do like how it does seem like it's its own little world and because in in this world chinese mysticism is real and it's you know when the in in this world to them when the chinese people came to america they brought the mysticism with them and all of their different you know demons and spirits and hells and it just it really does add to the layers that make this movie great. Yeah. And, um, one thing, one thing I always wondered growing up is did Mortal Kombat totally rip off the look for Raiden from the Chinese spirits? Yeah. I mean, I, I looked into that actually in preparation for, uh, this conversation, but it's been credited. What I found online was that, um, the folks, I guess over there at Midway who produced the original Mortal Kombat games, they did credit, Big Trouble in China as providing some of that, uh, some of that like visual inspiration. Um, Lo Pan was supposed to have also influenced the Shang Tsung character, the main character in that uh, Mortal Kombat game as well. Right, right. But I wasn't really able to find any citations, like actual quotes from interviews or, or anything like that. But I, I think they they did definitely use uh, inspiration from this film for those characters. Yeah, because, I mean, when I was, you know, after about 12 or 13, that's something that I always kind of wondered about and surprisingly never really bothered to to find out for myself. But, yeah, I figured if anybody would know, yep. it would be you. Yeah, I did. I did look into that. So another thing this movie has kind of right at the end is something that a lot of uh, 80s movies of this type think uh, Monster Squad, think – I mean, Ghostbusters, but for Ghostbusters, this was actually a pretty good one. But hmm. the end song, the title song, Big Trouble in Little China. It's pretty horrible. Oh, man, it's one of the worst songs I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, it's not good. Oh, it's so bad. It's, um, I guess, much like this film, it's kind of kooky. It's uh, it's oddball. I mean, you you um, it has just this odd sound. It's synthetic, which is like it's time from the 80s. It has this kind of synth sound to it. Also, he tried to weave in some Asian influence, I believe, to that song. So there's a little na 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 kind of Asian. Uh, I think it's a little bit on the keyboard, and it just it doesn't work. Right. I think John Carpenter himself sung that song, and it, it doesn't really work as a uh, pop song. I don't know if he sung it, but I, I think he wrote it. You know, just like okay, just like he writes the music. Maybe he composed it. Yeah, I mean, just like it, he writes the music in his movies, like he wrote the score for this film. I, I'm pretty sure he wrote the words for the song. I don't think he. I don't think he sang the song. I honestly don't want to know yeah. who sings the song. I, to be honest with you, this is the first time I subjected myself to listening to that song in probably about ten years. But I figured, you know, just for the purposes of the podcast, I should watch the movie all the way through, and that includes the credits. Yeah. So I was just, I was just, yeah, just reminded of of how bad it was, and it's like you can always tell when they're trying really hard to write a hit song that'll play on the radio. Like, you know, basically eight, trying to ape Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbuster song. And it just – it doesn't work. And like I said, the same thing with like uh, Monster Squad. The Monster Squad had a Monster Squad song. It just, it's yeah. just bad. It's just bad. Not, not, not everything is Ghostbusters or uh, Cyndi Lauper singing about the Goonies. <laughs> you're, you're probably right. I mean, the song's not great. I don't think I would ever like bump the song in my car on the way to work or something like that. It's not, I'm not, it's not on my gym playlist. I think maybe it's, um, it's like Stockholm syndrome or something. It's like 
I guess I love the movie so much and I do associate the song with the film. So it's like, I can't even really bring myself to hate the song. It's almost like, uh, it comes along with the film. So I think he's able to, to slide that one in for me. So why do you think audiences really didn't respond to this film when it came out in the theaters? It didn't do well. Uh, it got a huge cult following later on cable rewatches and then VHS. Yeah. So why didn't it hit during that summer? You know, it's like a movie, like there's always these types of movies. Like you talked about uh, Buck, Buck Rubanzai across the eighth dimension. Um, talking about this movie, Princess Bride was another one, even though I think it's a better film. It also didn't hit with audiences when it first came out in the, during its theatrical run. Where do you think it went wrong with audiences that first time around? And then why do you think they started grabbing to- gravitating towards it later? I, I think there's actually a couple of reasons, because I did look into that. I, I wanted to know how much of the film cost. I think uh, the reports I saw said it cost between 20 and $25 million to make. That might have included marketing as well. But it only grossed a little bit over $11 million during its theatrical run. So that's like 50% at best of, of its cost. So that's not good. So it's a flop, but I think there are a couple of reasons as with most cult films, people didn't really know what to do with it. I mean, it can't be popular at first or it wouldn't become a cult film. Like all of these Marvel films that we've been discussing, they're way too popular to begin with to ever become cult films down the line. They're just popular movies that performed well. And this one opened up against a popular film that did very, very well and has remained beloved in its time. It opened up against aliens. So there was a lot of hype. Oh shit. Like I did not know that. It did. Yeah. Aliens actually opened up, I think, (laughs) I think a week or two weeks after this film. Wow. So yeah, there was a lot of hype, a lot of marketing going on for aliens. And so uh, I think James Cameron just kind of dropped the bomb on them with aliens and it was a little overshadowed. I think the other thing, and this is probably the reason why people did pick it up in home video release later, and um, it became so much more popular down the line, is that people didn't really know what to do with it at first. We discussed early on in this episode that it's a, a strange amalgamation of a lot of different things. It has a lot of different elements. It's not necessarily what people expected from the um, main character, so to speak, behaving very much like a sidekick. I, I just don't think people really knew what to do with it. Possibly Paramount didn't even really know how to market it. That might have also been true because how do you market a cult film? I guess if you knew how to market a cult film, it wouldn't be a cult film because it would make uh, $100 million in the in the uh, in its theatrical run. So I think those are probably the two factors that kept this film from making money initially, but then allowed people to find it later on in its subsequent television runs, I think, attracted a lot of younger people like you and me who caught it on a Saturday and decided, hey, that's kind of cool. And then right. this this whole cult following the internet, no doubt, helps it these days because you can find the movie so much more easily. And you can find communities of other people who really like the weird shit that you're into, including um, cult films. Right. You don't really think maybe a little bit about I mean, when Jack Burton, you think he's the hero over the course of the movie, you really see that he isn't, even though some people like me still after 30 viewings still kind of miss that he's not the hero and he's not, he is a completely a sidekick that, you know, it ends with Wang having the happy ending, but Jack, you know, he leaves Gracie and he just drives away on the Pork Chop Express. He just, he goes through all this crazy shit in the two day period. And then he just goes back to being a trucker. Yeah. Like to me, it's almost, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of dissonant. 
it's a dissonant ending. It doesn't make, it's not the ending that you're used to seeing from a movie like this. And no, certainly not from a film like this. Although I, I do consider like, oh, well, this movie was originally supposed to be a Western. And what does the hero do at the end of the Western? He has to ride off into the sunset. He doesn't stay right. in town. Shane, Shane, come back. Right. Yeah, precisely. He doesn't settle down and plant roots. He jumps back up on the horse and goes. So I think that was maybe the tip of the cap to the Western that they were leaving in his, uh, the Jack Burton characters bravado is often compared to John Wayne, who's another prolific, uh, Western actor. So I think they wanted to leave that in to kind of cement that John Wayne kind of Western hero archetype, or maybe J- Jack Burton just right. thought that's what he was supposed to do. Maybe he's just such a blow. Right. He's like, well, I mean, and the, the best part of the, the closing scene to me is he's walking out the door. Gracie's standing there with the poutiest look on her face, trying to push her chest out and stuff like that. And Margot, the journalist character who's friends with Gracie, says, geez, aren't you even going to kiss her goodbye? And he looks at her for a beat and then he just goes, nope. And he just walks on out. And I'm just like, hold. I just stand up and clap every time I see that. I'm like, what a badass. I just love it. He just looks her right in the eye. He's like, nope. Just walks on out the door. I mean, he's trying to get in her pants the whole movie. And then at the end, when he's finally there, he's like, nope, I'm, I'm going to hop on my truck and go eat another sandwich. And you know what's crazy? He's saying no to mid-80s Kim Cattrall, who is maybe one of the most smoking hot women on the face of the planet at that time. If not the most smoking hot woman, with all apologies to Christy Brinkley in 1986. Yeah. So I mean, he's he's saying no to an incredibly beautiful woman. Yeah. It's a little it's a little different. It's a different ending. Yeah. If you've seen Mannequin, Porky's, uh, Police Academy, I mean, these were the 80s films that Kim Cattrall came out in, and she was just as you said. I mean, there was there was not a 15 year old watching Big Trouble in Little China that didn't think. Go back there and kiss her, you son of a bitch. How are you turning this opportunity down? You bastard, you rat bastard, you. But he still does. He just walks right out. <laughs> he just walks out. Yeah. Because, because I, wonder if, I wonder if it's right. It's like is he, he does it because he thinks it's what he has to do because he is such a blowhard. Yeah. That is, yeah, that is hilarious. He thinks that's consistent with like this this person he's trying to be or that he thinks he is. Right. Like, no, of course. I'm just right. going to. I'm going to hop back up on the horse and I'm going to ride off into the sunset and I'm going to leave her pining for more. Yeah. It's like in his mind, he is John Wayne and that's what John Wayne would yeah. do at least, you know, in, in the searchers. So that's what he does. So, I mean, it's, I mean, that, yeah, that makes sense. Now what last kind of question in this kind of realm of questions, do you think it maybe would have done a little bit better if it played up more of the horror angle that was kind of there for the taking with the demons and the sorcery? Or maybe if it was an R-rated film like like John Carpenter and uh, Kurt Russell's previous films, uh, The Thing, and more specifically, Escape from New York. Do you think maybe people saw John Carpenter, Kurt Russell, and was expecting more of a Snake Plissken type hero and instead – in Jack Burton, they gave them they gave audiences the anti Snake Plissken, and yeah. because it wasn't like that, that's kind of why maybe it didn't do great when when the movie first came out. Yeah, I mean that that may have been part of it. I, I it's very hard for me to imagine this film as more of a horror or more of an R rated action film. It's really hard for me to to kind of uh, push it. Uh, to, to um, upset that balance either one way or the other, and just because it's such a perfect film as it is. I, I don't think 
Maybe it would have worked better at the time, but it may not have become the cult classic that it is because I'm having a hard time imagining how I would even like what what elements would I appreciate. The stuff that I tend to love is all the like kind of the silly humor or the, like the little lines that are like the one liners, the asides, you know, Egg Shen saying something silly or you know, Gracie and Jack going back and forth. And I don't think the screwball elements would have worked as well if it would have been more of a horror film. I don't think those would have landed quite as well because uh, right. the tone would have have been more ominous the music would have been different um the lighting and stuff probably would have been different as well so it may have done better especially going up against aliens i mean if they had uh gone after that as more of a competitor to aliens they might have done better uh playing up the horror uh they might have done better if uh they'd spent a little bit more on the budget on doing the animatronics the the kind of creature effects that might have helped them out a little bit more too because then they could have banked on that in the marketing but it's, it is hard to say how those things affected, particularly since I don't remember much of 1986. Right. I can't say that. Like, it's weird. I remember more about the summer of 85 than I do about the summer of 86. Then that's just because, for me, the summer of 85 was the Back to the Future summer. So, yeah, yeah it's interesting, interesting how, like, the mind plays kind of tricks on you in that way. So, for you, where does this – talking we, – and we just mentioned The Thing and, and Escape from New York – where does this fit in, in, in those two giants of film, John Carpenter and, and Kurt Russell, in their individual filmographies? Like, where do you, like, to you, to you, is this one of John Carpenter's best films ever? Is it, you know, more of like a middling effort? And where does it fit in with Kurt Russell and, and the kind of movies that he's made in his career? I think for John Carpenter, I, I don't think it's a middling effort. I, I think out of all of his films, it does kind of stand out a little bit as being a very different product than his other works. But I do think that he expended a, a great deal of effort on this film and he really did want to make a good film versus just collecting a paycheck or something like that. So I don't know that it's technically his best film if you want to stand it up against other movies that he's made. It certainly wasn't his most influential. I'm sure that was probably Halloween. But uh, I do think as far as his whole filmography, this is the film that I prefer. If I'm doing a subjective ranking of John Carpenter's films, this is number one easily, bar none, hands down. And it's simply because I enjoy this film so much. I can watch it and watch it and watch it. And I can't say the same thing for any of his other films. I can watch them. Wow. Even, even over Escape from New York. Yeah. And I like Escape from New York. I really do. I like it very much. But uh, I don't love it as much as I love this film. I love this film. It's it's definitely the top for me as far as his his movies go. Probably the same with Kurt Russell too. I mean, I like a lot of Kurt Russell's films. Um, I like that Kurt Russell has some range too. I mean, I like that he's done the the more serious kind of action roles. He's done a little bit more dramatic stuff. He did the western with um, Tombstone, and then uh, he's done some more comedic films like Overboard and stuff like that. So I really do enjoy his body of work as well. Right. Uh, but I have to say. I think that this is his most unique character. Oh, easily. Yeah. And I think he had really had to, he had to understand what he was doing with this character too, that he wasn't playing a straight hero, that he was playing a bit of a comedic hero role and a, a bit of a sidekick role. And I think he did have to play to that. So I, th I think it does help show his strengths as a comedic actor, probably even more so than as a leading man or action star. Yeah. And I mean, I, I have to concur. I mean, I think, you know, for me, I mean, Escape from New York 
is just that is that is the pinnacle as far as I'm concerned with with Carpenter. And I know like the technical work he did on the thing is still to this day it still amazes me. Uh, the creature work that they did in that movie and the and the cinematography and the kind of uh, you know the atmosphere that he created with that film and then of course you know Halloween and, and all that but you know Escape from New York is definitely for me his best film but I, I think I agree with you 100 percent Big Trouble Little China is easily John Carpenter's most fun film yeah I, it doesn't even come close like nothing else comes close to this film as far as you know having a good time watching a movie is, from anything that John Carpenter has made yeah and you know Kurt Russell I mean. Jack Burton is easily uh, the most interesting character he's ever played. You know, just his uh, his crazy confidence and swagger. I mean, I love every minute of his performance. Uh, I, I wouldn't put it up there with, you know, playing Wyatt Earp in Tombstone or playing Herb Brooks in Miracle, which is interesting because in those two movies he's playing a real-life uh, character and not a fictional character, but... You know, I would I would put Jack Burton up there against Snake Plissken. I mean, I think I think yeah. I think Escape from New York is a better movie, um, but I, I think Jack Burton is definitely like Jack Burton could be like Snake Plissken's screw up younger brother or something, right? I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'd I'd much rather hang out with Jack Burton if I had to. Oh, who wouldn't want to hang out with Jack Burton? I'd rather spend a weekend in Vegas with Jack Burton than any of those other dudes because those <laughs> other dudes would just get you killed or something like that. I think McCready would have been. I think McCready was a good guy. It's just you know he happened to be stuck in Antarctica with a insanely crazy deadly alien, so we never really got to yeah. see how much fun McCready could be, right? Yeah, that's less fun for a weekend. That's that's kind of a <laughs> shitty trip, for sure. Over 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 the course of the last you know couple of decades, there's always this this idea that you know movies of this kind should be like remade or rebooted or uh, maybe even revisited, right? No. So I know. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you there. I think I think just even the think thinking that this movie should be remade, I think anybody who thinks that should be you know, committed to an insane asylum, but the idea of psychological eval for sure. Yeah. I mean, but the idea of revisiting Jack Burton 30 years later in a sequel, I don't know if I would even want to see that. I mean, to be honest with you, because this movie is so singular that it's, I like how it plays out that this is a, just, just a normal guy who has something insane happen in his life for two days. And then after that, he goes back to being a normal guy for his, you know, for the most part. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, he's, he still drives a truck that says pork chop express on the side, <laughs> but mostly express. normal guy. Right. <laughs> and it's, yeah. So like even the idea that, Oh, like 30 years later, some other crazy shit could happen to him. I kind of like the idea that this was like this one moment of his life. Everything else in his life is just normal for the most part. And this is the one crazy part of his life we got to see. And it was fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you 100. I, percent I've heard the news about Dwayne Johnson considering doing a remake. I think anybody who considers doing a remake of any cult classic film, you're throwing your money away. It, it will never be as good, and they're almost never successful. The remakes of of cult classics, people will always remember the original much more affectionately than whatever remake follows. And then also. If it was 1989 and they decided to make a sequel, I'm sure me as an eight-year-old, I would have done a backflip. 
I would have been so excited for a sequel to find out what happens to Jack after it, especially since they they end it with that weird creature, the weird hairy Sasquatch looking thing crawling out of his spare tire to, to attack him or something. You, you have to wonder, like, you know, are they going to get into some fight or does he show up a year later and this thing's like his Chewbacca? You know what I mean? Like it's his buddy now. <laughs> like I could see Jack Burton kind of taming it. That would have been interesting. Like feed him the sandwich and. <laughs> yeah, like, wouldn't it be funny if he just shows up like two years later and this thing's like Chewbacca? It's hanging out. It's it's like growling at him, and he, he can speak its language, sort of. And right. and you know, he's maybe he's got it on a chain, you know, around its neck or something, and kind of leads it around. But it's right. it's okay. I've got it on a leash, you know. And people would be shocked that he's got this huge monster. He's like, no, it's okay. It's he's on a leash. And he's fine. He's housebroken. He's not going to shit on your rug. But then he eats the cat or something like that. I don't know. So at, at this point, I, I do have to say. Uh, just for the love of Ching Dai, no remake, please no. Right. Just keep working on the Fast Fin Furious movies, Dwayne. You're doing a great job with Rampage and Jumanji, and you're cleaning up. Don't please don't do this for the love of Ching Dai. Um, I'm the God of the East, he says, please no. Um, I would also say at this point, sequel looks pretty unlikely. Egg Shen has passed away. The actor who played Egg Shen, I think Victor Wong, he's passed away. You know, everybody's just so much older. You know, it would be hard to recapture that magic. And I don't know that Carpenter would be involved at his age either. Now, what happened? Now, what if they did something along the lines of, well, this was big trouble in Little China and it was kind of an homage to Westerns and, 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 and fantasy movies. What if they did a big trouble in Little Italy that was an homage to mobster movies? And Jack Burton gets in trouble with the mob. And instead of being fantasy, it's just a straight mob movie with him in the middle of it. If somebody who is a talented filmmaker who obviously had a love of the material and a reverence towards the original material were to maybe lampoon some other genres, I think that could possibly work to maybe mine some more creative endeavors out of this material. But I, I do, I, I like the idea of films like this. So I welcome more movies that have kind of a tongue-in-cheek approach um, and still manage to craft kind of an interesting world and uh, really good characters with really great interaction. That's something I've always loved about the screwball films. I always love that that back and forth, but it's very rapid fire. It's it's like watching a really great tennis match or, or, or maybe even table tennis, the way it goes back and forth so fast. I think if you were to maybe recapture that and, and bottle that up and package it differently, that would be fine. You know, not so much if it's being sold as like, hey, you like Big Trouble in Little China, so here's a uh, remake. Why don't you come buy a ticket to that? Uh, you know, that seems more pandering. But if you were to do something that's still like a good creative endeavor, I mean, I think there's tons of fans out there that would be on board. Right. I think I think your your first instinct is right. Let's not even think about it and move on. Yeah. And I think I think it's also time for us to move on. That pretty <laughs> It's time for us to move on. Yeah. I think that wraps up our, our discussion about Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. I think I think it leaves it in a good place as far as that's concerned. It does. I think so. It's definitely a movie that we both love, and it's it's in a movie a movie that you really love. Uh, so yeah. you know, it's definitely one that we're gonna have to talk about at some point. I think it was a good uh, second episode, especially considering that our first episode was an Avengers movie. It's kind of a it's kind of a nice little palate cleanser. We go from one of the biggest movies of all time to one of the smallest movies that made the least amount of money of all time compared to its budget. So yeah, indeed, I think uh, I think that is is pretty perfect. And um, I, I also appreciate this because it gave me the opportunity to watch Big Trouble in Little China twice this month. I watched it twice in April. 
Oh, you did? I didn't know that. I did. I sure did. I watched it with Christina's parents. They'd never seen it before. And I was like, you guys like Kurt Russell, right? And Christina's like, oh, God, don't show them this movie. They're not going to get it. And and luckily, both her parents were like, oh, we love Kurt Russell. I was like, you hear that? They love Kurt Russell. I'm popping it right. in. And so Christina's like, all right. Oh, gosh. She, she fell asleep on my leaning on me. She fell asleep in two minutes. And I think, I mean, they at least lied to me and told me they enjoyed it. But Well, no, that's nice. That's nice of them. I mean, let's just say it's like we have mutual friends, you know, somebody who used to be your roommate. I think you I think I think you watched it so many times when you were in college that she at first began to <laughs> like it and then hated it by the end of your time living together. So, no. You know, it's one of the, <laughs> can't possibly hate Big Trouble in Little you know, China. I mean, some people's tolerance for watching the same movie over and over again, and this is something that we've talked about before. Like you and I can do it, and that's not a problem. But like you know, my mother, my mother is one of those people who's like, "Oh, you've already seen that movie. Why are you watching it again?" Yeah, yeah, for sure. Christina says, "Why? Why do you own so many movies? Like, uh, why, why would you even buy one? I don't even own one movie." And I say, "You don't even own one DVD?" She says, "No, I, you just you watch you go you watch it once, you rent it, you watch it once, you're good." I say, but what if you want to watch it again? What if you want to watch the commentary? What if you want to watch the bonus features? She's just like, what? So I, I, I get it. And I think she's picked up an appreciation of um, re-watching a film and what you can get out of it on subsequent viewings from watching things like Big Trouble in Little China with me. I, I think she tells me I've never seen a movie twice until I married you and then I've seen movies like four and five times. So, well, it's the fact that she's still there is a good thing then, because I I know how it is. Like, I don't know if I've chased away girlfriends in the past, you know, trying to get them to watch movies multiple times with me, but I've I've often gotten that, you know, why are you doing that? And you know, it's just you know, yeah, it's interesting. I, and what's weird, and what's weird is, is like I can't imagine seeing the world through that kind of point of view. Like I can't imagine not wanting to watch a yeah. movie that I like over and over again. I don't understand why you yeah. wouldn't want to do that. But let me tell you also one one thing that I can't believe hasn't come up yet, and this is how cool my wife is and how much I love Big Trouble in Little China. Um, but uh, for maybe the last 10 years or so, I have wanted to buy a truck. Not a big one like in the movies, but I, I wanted to buy like a, a Silverado, like a 3200, you know, like a, right. a fairly sizable truck, but still kind of a normal pickup truck um, and get a wrap on it, just like the Pork Chop Express and literally have it say Pork Chop Express on a Jack Burton trucking on the back and everything. And um, as cool as my wife is, she's like, yeah, I think that's a wonderful idea. I think you should get a truck that says Pork Chop Express on it. I think... I will ride in it with you and I'm totally down. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to, we'll take a camping and stuff and tailgating and I'm going to have a trailer hitch on it. And we're going to haul a smoker on wheels and, um, you know, we'll go smoke foods at a, at a, uh, tailgating event or something like that and drive around the old pork chop express. And I'm being 100% serious when I say that I am going to buy a truck and have it wrapped and look just like the pork chop express. And I'm going to be so damn proud of that truck. I mean, that's, that is pretty awesome, man. I mean, it also doesn't hurt that you look a little like Kurt Russell. Not a, not a lot, but there's a little bit mostly in the chin. I'm working on my mullet. Oh God, no, please. And when you, when you come, (laughs) when you come down to visit for Christmas, do not have a mullet. No, only, only Gators, only Gator fans have mullets. 
Come on. I won't wear I won't wear jean shorts. No jean oh shorts. Oh my god, that's the worst. No, I'm not going to have a mullet, but yeah, that's maybe a man bun. <laughs> that might be worse. <laughs> Any other parting words on Big Trouble in Little China? Or do you feel like you've said all there is to say, Matt? Well, I don't think you can ever say all there is to say about Big Trouble in Little China. I'm sure. We'll be talking about this movie when we're 80 years old, if I happen to live that long. So, you know, I think for right now, that's enough. But, you know, anybody listening, if anybody is actually listening, if you haven't seen Big Trouble in Little China, uh, sorry for spoiling the movie for you. If you have seen Big Trouble in Little China, but if it's been a little while since you've seen it, go out and see it and fall in love all over again. Yeah, go watch that movie again. Um, if you haven't seen it and we spoiled it and you're upset, well, it has been like 30-plus years, so uh, you had your chance. <laughs> I, I will say, right? uh, normally I don't like spoiling a film for somebody, but you know, if it's been 30 years since release, I'm just going to assume you've seen it. But um, if any of your opinions should differ from our own in regard to this particular film or maybe any of the others that we've mentioned during this episode, if you want to argue with us about Big Trouble in Little China. Arguing on the internet is the cool thing to do these days. So you can reach me at Jason Almy. That's J-A-S-O-N-A-L-M-E. That's uh, Twitter as well as Instagram. Um, so feel free to reach me there. Matt, you've got a um, you've got a Twitter as well, right? Yep. You can reach me at History of Matt. Uh, you know, if you want to ask any questions or, you know, whatever we talked about or maybe even suggest a movie for us to talk about next you know if you happen to like us talking about movies we'll be happy to do that that's all great shit for us to talk about uh, next time so look for new episodes on the 15th and 30th of every month that'll be when the new new drops and um you know it's been great talking to you man i really uh, appreciate these conversations about movies you too man all right buddy well i'll talk to you again soon all right be good later everybody